The Nourish and Shine podcast is provided for educational and informational purposes only, and it is not medical, mental health, or healthcare advice. The information presented here is not intended to diagnose, treat, heal, cure, or prevent any illness, medical condition, or mental or emotional condition. Please make sure you consult with a trusted healthcare professional before you make any changes. Welcome to Nourish and Shine, where I talk with passionate leaders in the fields of nutrition, functional and integrative medicine, and wellness, providing inspiration and practical advice to nourish your mind, body, and spirit, optimize your health, and live a whole vibrant life starting now. I am so grateful to have had this conversation with today's guest. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Verena. She was on last season, and she is back. So if you missed last season's interview, it's a two-part series. I highly suggest you go back and check it out. But today, we are talking about raising resilient children, which is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. So I hope you really enjoy this episode. And if you do, please leave me a ratings or review on iTunes. Welcome to Nourish and Shine. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Verena Rashka Chima. She is a doctor in nutritional sciences and neurotraining kinesiologist, also an author and health and well being speaker. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited to be talking with you today. Thanks, Amy. Super excited to be back and be sharing some experiences, pearls of wisdom, and just sharing of being a mom, right? Yes. So today we're going to talk about raising resilient children. But before we do, I'd love for you to tell our audience a little bit about yourself in case they didn't catch your last episode, which or two episodes, which I would highly suggest you go back and check out. I am a PhD in nutritional sciences, so studied uh, at the University of Vienna in Austria, also did part of my master's with University of Sydney, in Australia, and then my PhD, which really focused a lot on the nutrition transition and indigenous food cultures and their their opportunity for health advancement, uh, but really focused a lot on the nutrition transition as such uh, that provides a frame for work for universities today. And I did my PhD um, as well with University of Vienna, but also Monash University, and then um, met my husband there, which uh, was beautiful. And we lived in New Zealand. We're teaching both at the university there um, in Wellington, and then um, yeah, put our feet down in Sydney, Australia, and this is where we are still living, south of Australia, on the beautiful Il- Illawarra coast where we are passionately now working. I transitioned from university academia to uh, clinic work um, and share my passion also through um, writing um, and speaking engagement. And we really utterly enjoy raising our two boys who are turning seven and nine soon. During our last conversation, you brought up the concept of raising resilient children. And it's something too that I was very interested in um, having a one and a four-year-old. So before we dive too deep into it, let's talk about the basics. What is really, um, what is resilience? And um, what does a resilient child look like? 
Well, first, we really have to consider that there is no perfect child, right? And when we talk about uh, resilience, it's really important to think of flexibility. And a resilient child is, of course, a child that is um, where the bodily systems work really well, where um, we also have a, like core functions, movement, structure, um, all working well, so well-established physically. But a resilient child is also a child that feels physically safe. So physical safety when uh, in the formative years is really, really important for a child to also become physically resilient. A child that feels grounded, self-aware, learns to read their own body language, their body needs, but also um, on a mental level where we know memory, cognition, concentration, attitude, positive mindset is all developed, as well as this awareness of, okay, the the more the child grows up, developing that self-awareness, what are maybe my limiting beliefs, what are my, my personal perception that may not serve me anymore. So really, um, a resilient child is also a child that can create the space for self-reflection and um, introspective opportunity. As far as early development goes, what sort of things can we do early on to support those aspects um, of wellness? It is very, very important with the early development that we really look at um, having, of course, being, I think early development, we really have to think of um, working on ourselves. So the health of the parent mentally, physically, emotionally is absolutely crucial to develop a resilient child because there is more and more research emerging um, that when the mother is uh, not nutritionally nourished optimally, when um, there are high stress levels in the parents that this is really affecting the child's physical, mental, and emotional development. So we want to do whatever is possible to really put a toolkit together for ourselves to and, and really have to support networks and already starting with, with preconception to really ensure that 60 years later, that is the rich resilient child we raised. So what is really important is that we shouldn't think of raising resilient children that this finishes um, at the line of conception of birth. It is really 60 years later that we see the impact of what we nourished that child with physically, emotionally, and mentally in the early years, that that outcome is really seen 60 years later. When we talk about preconception and like health during pregnancy, I know both of us are very passionate about nutrition. Um, can we go a little deeper into that and um, how the maternal nutrition is so important? Absolutely. So if we, for example, start at conception, we know that the DNA and genes are passed on. So it's all about creating that foundations and the resources that are drawn 
from when living the, uh, the child lives his or her life. So it has become clear that in the first thousand um, days in a child's life, starting with conception, it offers really that critical window of plasticity, that quality of being easily shaped and molded. So the father and mother should be nutrient replayed at least four months prior to conception. And what is also super important is that stress management as well as metabolic health. They are really key in ensuring optimal genetic expression with support that is then being continued throughout that pregnancy and lactation period. A very, very good example I found um, is the Dutch famine that um, is a great example of the importance of, pre of that preconception window. In 1944, for example, we had a German blockage that cut off the food and fuel supply to the region of the Netherlands, plunging like 4.5 million people into quite severe and devastating famine for four months. So the adult rations, for example, dropped to four to 800 calories, um, and sources of fats and proteins were very scarce. So those exposed to the famine in early gestation suffered, for example, higher rates of coronary heart disease, type 2 diabetes, obesity, breast cancer, and depression, and had daggering levels of cognitive function, glucose, insulin, and hypercholesterolemia later in life. So it gives us really a clue on how environmental exposure is passed on through the generations. And what I always like people to envision is envision that picture of three generations so envision that your grandmother being pregnant with your mom and the eggs that your mom conceived you with were already in utero in her um, uterus right so when it comes to your health that maternal environment and nutritional condition that it really goes through three generations so meaning it provides us with such an insight when it when we look at our health challenges i always say look back all the way to your grandparents um, and even grand grandparents what were the emotional mental and physical stressors and environment of those last two generations or even three generations it gives you such a critical insight in what you may need to really support there's a few things I want to bring up there, but I love that you bring up the health of the father as well through all of this, because a lot of times the health and nutrient status of the mother is really focused on, but we forget that the father matters a lot too. And recently I was reading some um, literature on like the uh, folate status in a male um, and how that affects sperm in important parts to underline, but then also how you talk about the intergenerational aspect of this and how nutritional status and stress and, you know, life trauma can all be passed on generation to generation. Absolutely. I totally agree. There is more and more emerging evidence that the, the health status of the father prior to conception is, is just as equally important as the mother's 
if not even more important. So that is really important to consider. Um, and so get the dads on, 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 you know, on your side. Um, and I also agree with you um, in terms of that uh, while genetic expression plays a role, more and more robust evidence indicates that, that epigenetic modifications created in response to unhealthy diet, lack of exercise, smoking, alcohol, and environment pollutant as well as the psychological stress, can all increase the risk of diseases throughout life, particularly metabolic diseases. And we see so much of it, right? The high blood pressure, the high blood sugar, the excess body fat around the waist, and those abnormal cholesterol levels. Moving into kind of um, some of the other factors too that are really important in early development, we talk about social engagement and that's one of the things you brought up with social engagement and kind of how that plays a role. Um, and also right now with all of the COVID-19 stuff going on and social distancing, what are your thoughts around that? My thoughts around that are that um, the it's really, really important that the mother stays as calm as possible and also the father, of course, course. but the younger the child is, of course, there's still more important in the first two years of life. The mother's attachment and bonding should not be impacted. Um, and if so, really su support should be drawn on. So what I mean by that is in the first two years, like I would say from conception, but particularly that third trimester to the second um, year of life, it is all about that attachment and then bonding. And it's about very critical concept that the child gets taught about that it draws on later in life. So also because the right brain works are developed, right brain networks are developed. Um, it is critical that that bonding is really facilitated by the mother having a toolkit uh, that she can draw on every day to stay as calm and centered and grounded as possible. So we a good example of that was, for example, when we here in Australia and Queensland had the floods in 2010-2011, where women who were pregnant, for example, at the time of the floods, um, they showed the children then uh, of those women showed greater anxiety symptoms at the age of four years, even um, after controlling for maternal psychological factors. So I think it is really important that um, we support the mother's emotional um, and mental well-being as much as possible. Meaning, um, we have meditation absolutely vital. To, to calm down that autonomic nervous system to be more in the rest and digest state uh, that facilitates really a strong, stronger gut-brain connection, a stronger gut microbiome, which is a very important com communication system in body. Then also breathing exercises. I always say go back to the breathing exercise of inhaling to the count of four and exhaling to the count of six so that longer exhalation is really important. Do it for two minutes, 15 rounds, because this has been clinically um, now for research even proven to really, really strengthen that rest and digest state, that vagal nerve, that vagus nerve, and um, facilitates really 
a reset. It's, it's really um, can facilitate that relaxation response. So the more calm and grounded the mother is, the more she can help her child to facilitate that positive sense of self. Because we have to imagine that we are not born with a positive sense of self. This is really developed throughout our entire childhood in those formative years. So what I mean by that, the mother particularly um, is crucial in providing the child with the ability to learn to regulate emotional stress, to become resilient and develop the capacity to cope with stress, that auto-regulation, meaning the child's ability to self-regulate stress, but then also the mother and father teach the child how to regulate um, stress with through the help for other people. It's really a sense of a strong positive sense of self means also I'm feeling uh, stable while being changeable and adaptable. And this is with the COVID-19 right now, very much challenged. How much can we go with the flow, stay in our self-trust and don't switch over to that existential fear because that is really um, then weakening and our defense Uh, force our guards are being let down with that so we want to facilitate a positive sense of self uh, really that is also then very important in the child's ability to create deep lasting relationships as an adult and have that capacity for intimacy so i think right now we really have to as much as possible as parents work on ourselves because the more centered and grounded we are the more our children will really benefit in the long term. You talked about teaching your children to regulate um, stress. Is modeling the behavior the best way, or do you have other other ways to help teach children um, how to regulate stress? Communication is really key. Um, talking with your child, but then right now, you know, with it depends, of course, on the context, what you're talking about. But um, right now with the COVID-19, definitely water it down. Like, um, because we cannot control, you know, what children are told outside of our realm that we can't control. For example, um, the what's taught in schools right now about COVID-19. But I have clients who's and, and their children are extremely anxious. They don't sleep anymore. They are afraid of dying when they get COVID-19, the COVID-19 virus. So that is already a child that is highly anxious. So for example, that child really needs everything to be watered down, be, to be reassured, because we have to consider that a child and before the age of seven comes more from that reptilian back brain. It's not as much as seven uh, years and older using the solution-oriented thinking, meaning that um, the back and front lobes connect in older children. And Hence, they really think about consequences of their actions. Well, younger children don't do it as much. So they live really in the present moment. So it's really about important for them to um, still instill a lot of happiness, joy, um, hope in them. Just really be present and and go about the day-to-day joy 
like don't make the disease the center of attention because for children who live in the present you know it will be um, then really impacting their life because they may not think that this is uh, gonna pass and so forth if they are younger so we should not you know make it like too mentally and emotionally heavy on them so when we come back to toolkits um, with children really engage in a lot of active play a lot of lot of active play um, as well as touch them a lot cuddle them a lot um, that all really helps very well in that cognitive, physical, social, emotional well-being of children. So interactive play, a lot of cuddling, um, then maybe read certain books to children um, that are in different in, in, in a similar context where children which helps children to process information. Uh, but also then of course work a lot on you as a parent to have the space for the child because you have to imagine as a child as as a parent you really create that space that environment for your child that the child then feeds off so meaning really i i like meditation breathing are, are just the most beneficial tools that gonna work the fastest for parents and in really creating space um, as, and, and ask for support. And that those are, I think, the most important tools. Creating that space. And also during this time where we're encouraged to be socially distant and such, I think it's a time for your family to come together um, and really spend time together. And, you know, you don't have as many commitments maybe or things to run around and do and kind of fill your life with busyness. It's a time that you can really spend with your children one-on-one and doing those things that are, you know, maybe active or enjoyable. Like I know my daughter and I went on a bike ride yesterday and we've been playing a lot outside in the yard and just trying to spend family time. We had a little fire and roasted s'mores, you know? And so I think um, it's kind of easy to get stuck to watching the news and really worrying about what's going on, but also finding that space to just kind of process and relax and disconnect a little bit. I totally agree with you, Amy. It's really about being very strict about your boundaries right now. So how much uh, fear and like kind of uh, news uh, do you want to expose yourself to? So really be informed. But instead of reacting respond this is really critical uh, that children then witnessed it too and instead of being too much in front of the computer or engaged uh, uh, in social media and putting the kids you know in front of computers as well or ipads or letting them play play video games endlessly engage with them this is exactly what they need right now so it's about nourishing on all levels so go for that bike ride connect to nature which is super grounding go outside in into the bush or um, to the beach and also play those games with them that's exactly what they need because that calms them that reassures them and again that reconnects them to that positive sense of self you touched on the gut-brain connection um, and the importance of vagal tone. Um, let's also talk about the gut microbiome and how we can how this plays into the resilience in children and why it's so important. 
just to recap a bit, a bit and pull it back uh, for those people who have not heard too much about the gut-brain connection. So uh, when we talk about the gut-brain connection, it's really that uh, connection between the brain and the gut, where we also have that enteric nervous system that governs emotion in it. So when we think of that communication system between the gut um, and the brain, we called the gut-brain axis, it's really uh, mind-baffling that 100 billion neurons are actually in the human brain compared to the gut containing 500 million neurons. So when we think about that interconnection um, of the two, what we see very often is that when it comes to child development, um, that gut-brain connection can be compromised through stressors that the child experiences. So that can be, for example, already starting at um, trauma or stress that the mother had in utero. That can be um, then at birth, so birth presentation, premature labor, labor that was too long or too short, medical interventions. That can all put a child into a fight flight state where that rest and digest state, that parasympathetic nervous system gets compromised in and that sympathetic nervous system uh, that supports the fight flight is um, of course supporting and in overdrive. So it is really, really important that we support children um, through such experiences early enough because this has been shown to really weaken that gut-brain connection, the vagal nerve, uh, but also therefore the gut microbiome. So that has then been shown to really expose children um, and is associated to earlier development of asthma, childhood asthma, childhood eczema, irregular bowel movements, for example, um, sleep problems in children, um, even children who have speech or behavior delays uh, or bedwetting is a good example. That is all a sign that the parasympathetic nervous system that rests in digest state is compromised and those children are still more in high alert on a subconscious level. So that really affects the gut microbiome because the, we have to think the gut microbiome is really a communication network of a lot of um, different bacteria that get then compromised through stress experiences. So when we, for example, think of early um, development, research supports more and more the idea that uh, our first contact with microbes is in utero now. So it's not anymore that what we have thought um, a few, even just years ago, that we were born with a sterile gut. So now we have more and more evidence that bacterial DNA and metabolites have been detected. So <clears throat> the potential impact on the fetal microbiome and immune system development during gestation um, and then during birth and through conception, sorry, through the conception of, of, of breast milk is really super, super important. So hence any impact on the maternal gut microbiome can impact the development of the fetal 
gut microbiome and other organ systems, particularly also immune function. As we know, 70 to 80% of immune cells are residing within the gut wall. So if the gather mother, for example, had already high stress, gut dysbiosis, um, inflammatory diseases, if the child has any, uh, had any stress in, in utero or around conception, or if there's an inferior diet later on, a lot of antibiotic use, this is all used to poor health outcomes later on, so can contribute to obesity, the higher, higher susceptibility to food allergies, um, environmental allergens, the immune profile is compromised, um, and inflammatory uh, bowels and gut conditions are increased because that gut microbiome has been weakened through that. So we also know that mode of delivery plays a really important role because when we have, for example, children who are born preterm, they miss out on the bifidobacteria and bifidobacteria are acting as a fertilizer to help other strains to grow and improve the gut ecology. So that can negatively impact the intestinal barrier function, but we also know how important bifidobacteria are for having a strong carbohydrate digestion later in life. We also know that um, cesarean children are more inoculated, their gut is more inoculated by skin bacteria. Uh, when we compare them to children who had a vaginal birth, it is that children with, um, with vaginal birth have 72% of maternal gut micro, um, resemble 72% of the maternal gut microbiome compared to children who are born via cesarean only resemble 41% of the maternal gut microbiome. So what is really important here is not getting stressed out about that the child has been born preterm or via cesarean. I always say, let that experience empower you and particularly that information because that just purely means you have to support the gut microbiome of your child more. So particularly those bifidobacteria, um, but also we know it has been shown that when children are supported more for probiotics, um, and of course, then once uh, they have been weaned with prebiotics, particularly bifidobacterium, uh, bifidobacteria strains, lactobacillus, rhamnosus strains, we know that they enhance microbiome development, support immune function, and really promote that gut health in, in infants. And we've seen how it reduces childhood eczema, upper respiratory infections, ear infection. Uh, and antibiotic-related side effects. So it is very, very powerful because we have to imagine that really the gut microbiome is stable at three years of age. So we have that critical window in the first three years of life that we really can do a lot. Then it is from a compositional perspective very similar to that of an adult. But it doesn't matter even if your children are already older it doesn't matter when you start, start where you are now and really nourish that gut microbiome, which is, of course, remember, through the gut-brain connection, not only nourished through food, but also mentally, emotionally. So the more your child is in that rest and digest state, 
the better that gut microbiome, that uh, that communication network will be and the stronger that immunity will be. I think that brings up so many good points. And I love that you talk about rest and digest um, and the importance of that with regard to children, because I think even just something as simple as having a meal together at dinner time, like creating that space to actually sit and enjoy the meal and then like talk afterwards or, you know, kind of let the children rest and digest afterwards, I think is really important, not only for the parents too, but for the children and creating that social bonding. Also, you mentioned the microbiome is stable by three years old, which is pretty incredible. But I think you bring up a really important point that don't be discouraged if, you know, if you did have a cesarean delivery or whatever, um, there's still a lot of things you can do to impact the microbiome in a positive way. Um, Could we dive into that a little bit deeper and go through um, for children? What are some things we can do to help build a healthy microbiome? Well, the first thing is really. if you have the possibility to plan <clears throat> conception and really try to decrease stresses as much as possible in um, when you are pregnant, that is super important. Then, of course, diet is really important. So of the mother, that is really key. But also l- reducing the exposure to environmental toxins. That is also very important to eat um as chemical and pesticide free as if if organic um, that is of course a possibility as well because we really want to reduce the impact of agricultural toxins such as glyphosate to the gut microbiome because it has such a detrimental effect then uh, of course also limiting uh, the exposure to antibiotics as much as possible Um, and then when it comes to children really breastfeeding of course as as long as possible a clean diet when it comes to weaning with um, the essential nutrients but of course support through those um, natural probiotics and prebiotics as much as possible as well. If there is really uh, a medical intervention at birth, then um, highly recommend working with a healthcare practitioner that can support with appropriate probiotics, but also see when uh, there was a quite a traumatic birth or, or a very stressful period for that child uh, in that in the first formative years, get support of, um, for example, osteopaths, cranial sacral therapy um, has such a powerful effect in really facilitating that rest and digest because it really rebalances that autonomic nervous system of the child and therefore really strengthens the gut microbiome and the immune system. But what has actually also shown uh, to actually go back with pregnant mothers, for example, when they're very stressed, choline is 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 really the new nutrient um, in regards to supporting um, brain functions, brain function in um, the growing child, but also has a huge benefit in de-stressing the mother. Um, and generally, I really also say that the, the mental and emotional health of the mother are absolutely key. So always check for deficiencies as a mother. 
it doesn't matter where you are right now. Um, if you want to conceive, if you're pregnant, if your child is already um, eight years old, if you feel stretched, if you feel highly stressed, if you're very anxious, if you're uh, challenged by postnatal depression, whatever it is, get those minerals checked, get those vitamins checked, work, work with a good healthcare practitioner to really know where are your deficiencies because it's not just all in the head. It's really supporting your physiology um, will really help to make you more calm on a mental, emotional level and actually nourish your child um, on all levels better and then of course what is also very important um, let your child get dirty <laughs> let it uh, get in touch with those microbes right get a little veggie patch even if you have an apartment get a little um, kind of um, veggie uh, patch going for your child that it or just that pot those few pots where it can dig around and and really teach them and learn like teach them how to grow even just herbs get in the kitchen and learn them how to like teach them how to cook um nourishing whole foods it, it's really that connection and that education that is really important too and teach them about their own bodies teach them what food does to them teach them what um, hydration dehydration for example do they have any dehydration signs uh, when children don't you know, drink enough water. My son, for example, knows it. It's like, mom, my bum hurts again. I haven't drunk enough water. Um, um, give me, can I please have some water? So it's, it's really making themselves aware of how their body works uh, is, is really, really important in a really good way. And they're really good educational tools, again, like books. They're really good children's books about gut microbiome. The happy, happy poo, for example, is one really teaching children about the that inner communication uh, network and how they can, what they can actually do themselves to facilitate the the those good bugs versus growing the the bad bugs. I love that, and involving the kids in kind of a fun way by reading books about it, or like in the kitchen, learning to cook and use different foods, I think is a fun way to teach them, but also they're so like ready to learn. And I think engaging them in like their senses in different ways is so important. Um, totally, totally important. And I think what what is also super important is teaching them self-trust. I think that is the absolute baseline for a resilient child. So as a parent, we facilitate the journey. We don't own it and we don't control it. And all of us have to tell ourselves that all the time because I think it's just a human nature to want to control it uh, because it's a form of where we feel then we, we, we have it in control, because, meaning it makes us feel safer because when we go with the flow, it is really a sign that we self-trust a lot and that empowers the child in so, so many ways. So whether it is in regard to food choices that they want to make, um, of course, talking about it, but um, sometimes just trusting why they want, don't, don't want to eat certain foods or why they want to try certain foods, uh, but also in regards to um, a lot of their actions. 
I struggle with um, to some degree because I think it's difficult to do to not be that mom that's saying like, oh, this is what you should do, you know, but to let them kind of figure it out to some degree. Um, And I think when it comes to food, especially being able to listen to your body and know how food makes you feel is really, really valuable. And it's something as an adult that I wish I was better at. Um, So being able to teach children that I think it's really cool. It's really super important because it sets the foundation for adulthood. So those children who are controlled extremely uh, in regards to how much and what to eat, um, particularly when there are also limiting beliefs taught, like you can't eat more because you're already too big or be careful, you, you shouldn't eat that because you get too heavy. Those are all limiting beliefs and perceptions that are in, implanted that then really have an extremely negative effect um, when those children are adults. So we have to really facilitate extremely healthy body image and that comes through self-trust and going with the flow and not controlling your child. Um, And of course, it's important to make them aware of things, but teach it in a healthy way by also role modeling. And this is where it comes to the point as, as adults then, that it is raising children is such a great invitation for self-inquiry because everything we talked about is really it starts with us because as parents it's really about resolving our limiting beliefs um, and identify and resolve our fears our controlling behaviors our perfectionism and our triggers because at the end of the day our children are really perfect mirrors and triggers for our unresolved stressors that we have not very often taken care of. And very often we too let it out on them. Although they have nothing to do with it, I always say I would have loved to, and we can now do it with our children, that my parents would have taught me that when they were angry, when they were upset, that it had nothing to do with me. So the more we can explain our children where our emotions, where our frustrations come from, and even if we let it out on them, because it's not about being perfect as a parent, we're just human beings. But if we get angry at our children, if we get upset, or if the bath time routine, the bedtime routine is not going quick enough because we have to still write an email or something, let's don't let it out on them. Let's, and if we did, then maybe after we did it, because we couldn't take that breath and hold ourselves back, it's really about explaining our kids, sorry that I, you know, took it, like got a, a little bit upset or angry. It has nothing to do with you. It's just because A, B, and C right now is going on in my life. So really... I think it's important to communicate to children that a lot of our emotions and behaviors have nothing to do with them. You see yourselves being more triggered, uh, getting more out of control uh, by your children because of your children's behavior. Then, really, what you have to do is actually pull back and create more time for yourselves, uh, for self, because that then means you, you're your load is too high, 
your cup is not full enough. So really always check in. Are you creating enough space and time to self-nourish? Like you mentioned, like, I wish I would have known as a child. And that it made me think like, oh, the things I wish I would have known as a child that would have changed how I perceived um, my parents being or whatever, I think um, it's a really interesting way to think. And with each generation, I think there's so much we can improve upon, like how we how we teach our children and, you know, make it better for them um, from what we've learned from our experience. So I hope that makes sense. But <laughs> that makes, uh, that makes total sense. I've had conversations with moms and dads um, as well, that we are saying that we are parenting our children quite differently to our parents, but that's okay because our parents did the best they could with the resources and capacities that were available to them. Because we have to imagine that a lot of uh, my parents, for example, European background, they had parents that came out of World War II. So it really depends again of, and this is why the the best invitation I can give to today's parents is look at your family history. Look at what, what the stresses were because this really explains why your parents, for example, were the way they um, are the way they are or were the way they are because they their, their upbringing shape and they, their experiences shaped them to the humans they are and, and the parenting style they had. And the same with us. But what the main difference is to um, our parents is that we are more open with our children. We communicate more with them. We share more with them on a personal level. Uh, we have a more different, we have a bond that I think is already earlier in earlier on developed on founded on more trust. Um, because it is less strict, it is less authoritarian. So that all is is very, very beneficial. And I agree with you on that. Uh, is evolving with every generation. And our kids are going to parent differently again. So it has been wonderful talking with you. Are there any last words or thoughts that you want to leave our audience with today? I just maybe want to remind everyone that you create the environment physically, mentally, and emotionally that your child gets nourished in and feeds from. So make it the best you can, but also be kind to yourself as we are all humans. We, it's not about getting it perfect. It is really about self-inquiry, awareness, kindness, empathy, and just being sometimes with your children. and just committing to the ride of working on oneself and taking self-responsibility for one's actions. We always have the ability to change what has not worked the last time or before. So it's really about just enjoying the ride. Yes, that's a beautiful message. And Thank you so much for being on. I know people are going to want to connect with you. What are the best ways for them to find you online? The best way is you can find me on Instagram under Dr. Verena, or you can check out um, more and more resources that are coming your way via my website, drverena.com. I will be um, also providing more eBooks um, and 
other little sources for people to draw from. So you can subscribe to my newsletter via my website. Well, I will link all of that up in the show notes. And I want to thank you again so much for being back on the podcast. It's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for listening to Nourish and Shine. I hope that you enjoy this episode and that you'll leave me a review on iTunes so that more people can hear the podcast. I'd also love to connect with you on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I would love to hear your questions, so please send them my way. Also, you can check out my website. It's amysopola.com. I hope that today's interview provided you with some inspiration and practical advice to nourish your mind, body, and spirit, optimize your health, and to live a whole vibrant life. Please join me again next week for another amazing interview. Have a wonderful week.